Welcome to the sermon cast from King Road Church. It's our desire that God uses this message to bring you closer to Him. If you'd like to pray with someone, speak with one of our pastors, or if you're looking for more resources, please go to kingroad.ca, scroll down on the homepage, and fill out the Reach Out fillable. Thanks for joining us. Enjoy the message. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be spending most of our time, uh, some time here in Matthew chapter 1, but then also looking at uh, a portion of Joshua and a portion of Ruth. So jumping around the scriptures a bit, a little bit into Luke too. So have your Bibles on hand, ready to go, um, ready to flip back and forth. Um, you, you've probably heard some stories in the past, maybe it's been in a good book or a movie or a TV show, where um, the, the person or the main character has looked back on his or her ancestry, um, has looked back, it might be a few generations, it might go back, you know, dozens of generations, whatever, and they, they look back and there's, there's some characters in there that those people aren't necessarily super thrilled about that the the character in the movie is kind of trying to come out from under the shadow of that ancestor who was so evil and wicked or who abdicated his responsibilities or something along those lines. When you look at Jesus's genealogy here in the beginning of Matthew, it's kind of no different. There are some really good people in there, some people that Historically, uh, for us who know our Bibles and who have lived uh, and you grew up going to Sunday school, you learned about Abraham and David and you learned about the, the people that kind of have a, a overall a, a good history. But when you look at this list, there's some names in here that uh, if, if this was your list, you would look back on it and kind of go, uh, let's, let's try to forget about that guy. Oh, no, I don't want to hear more about Uncle Jeroboam or whoever. So we're going to go through this list, um, and then as we, get into the, as we get into the message today, but I'm going to read through this here, Matthew starting, chapter 1, starting verse 2. A whole bunch of names here, so get ready. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, and at the time of the deportation to Babylon. 
and after the deportation of Babylon. Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. <laughs> applause. There's applause here for this. That's funny. <laughs> so you go through a list like that, and most of us can't even trace our genealogies back that far. But here it is. Uh, the Jews are very good at keeping their genealogies intact, and Matthew even, as we discovered a few weeks ago, he doesn't even name everybody. He actually leaves out some really wicked people in this, but there are some wicked people that he names too. He names, in verse 7 and 8 alone, Rehoboam, Abijah, Abijah, and Joram were all known for their wickedness. Wicked kings. So if you're Matthew and, and you're choosing to leave out certain names anyway because you have your reasons uh, for, for, for this genealogy of why you would want to leave out certain names, why aren't you leaving out those ones? Why are you keeping some wicked ones in there? As a, as a first century Jew, wouldn't you have looked at this list and gone, boy, um, there's some people in there that I wouldn't be proud of. Plus there's even Gentiles in there. And then you look at the women that are named. You would think Matthew would want to include the names of Sarah and Rebecca and Leah. But no, he includes Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. He doesn't even name her, but the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, and Mary. So when you look at this, you have to ask the question, why is he choosing the names that he's choosing? Why has he left... Why has he chosen those five women, even? We know that from Genesis chapter 3, that God, that was the first time God had talked about sending a Messiah, a hero, a savior, a redeemer, who would come as an offspring of Eve. So it makes sense that he has some women in there to show that, that they played a major role in this, of course. But why these five women? Why these ones? If you look at them, and we're going to look at them, you'll, you'll notice that they have some checkered pasts. But interestingly, Matthew includes these women, as shameful as their pasts have been. So today we're going to look at them and see that through unexpected providence, this is the main point of the sermon, through unexpected providence, Jesus redeems us from our sin and our shame. Through unexpected providence, Jesus redeems us from our sin and our shame. So we're kind of going to do short, five short character studies of these women, and there's going to be one big application at the end. All right, so first we're going to start with Tamar. Uh, the account of Tamar's life can be found in Genesis chapter 38. Uh, I'm not going to be reading through that because there are a number of reasons why this story isn't in the children's Bible. <laughs> there, there are some pretty interesting pieces to this. And parents at home, my Christmas gift to you, you can explain that to your children. It's not going to be me. 
So, so we aren't going to look at that, but I'm going to just give a, a bit of a summary because there are some pretty soap opera-worthy pieces here that, that we can't ignore. Um, but without going into too much detail, we're just going to take a quick kind of summary of it. So to sum it up, uh, in Je Genesis chapter 38, Judah has three sons. He has Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Yes, Shelah was a guy's name back then. So Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And Tamar married Ur. So jo Judah goes out and finds a wife for his son Ur, and it's, it's Tamar. But what is it? the scripture tells us that Ur was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. That's all we know. It doesn't say anything else about Ur, what he did, why he was wicked. No, we just, the Lord was done with him. He's out of the picture. So next, in terms of their heritage and their culture, and, the, and actually even in the Pentateuch, in the, in the first five books of the Bible, it, there's a law that talks about this thing called leveret marriage, where the, son, or the brother of the deceased husband is actually required to now spend some time with the widow and so that she can have children. So uh, Onan, the second born, is now, Judah says, Onan, this is your duty. You've got to go spend some time with uh, Tamar so that she has children in Ur's name. But Onan, now he's the oldest. Now he's the one getting the vast majority of the inheritance. So if he gives her a child in Ur's name, now that child is actually going to get the majority of the inheritance. So Onan's like, is like, yeah, sure. Yeah, I'll do that. But he figures out a way to not give her any children. And so the Lord says what he did was wicked and puts him to death. So Onan's gone, Ur's gone, and now there's Sheila. But Sheila's too young. Sheila's not old enough to get married yet. So Judah is holding him back, and he says, Tamar, hey, why don't you go back and live with your father, go to your father's house for a while, while we wait for Sheila to grow up. Now this actually in itself was a shameful thing for a widow to have to do. For a widow to have to go back to her father's house was not seen as, a, as an acceptable thing in that culture, and so this is shameful. So look at, look at um, Tamar's situation here. Everything, all the bad things that have happened to her have been brought on, not of her own doing, but have actually been brought on by the wickedness of the first two men, and now uh, the, the, the shame of the culture just being heaped upon her. So she goes back, lives with her father, and then she finds out after a certain number of years that Sheila's grown up now, and Judah hasn't brought him over. So what's Tamar to do? Now Tamar is being dealt with wickedly by her father-in-law and by her, her, um, her former husbands. So what's she to do? Well, she concocts a bit of a scheme. And she decides that she's going to find out where Judah's going to be at the city gate and when he's going to be there. And so she dresses herself all up, covers herself with a veil, and acts as a prostitute. And she goes and sits at the gate, and Judah comes by, and uh, Judah sees her and says, hey, why don't we go hang out for a bit? And they go, and they work out a deal for a young goat. And, and this is the payment to spend time together, that Judah's going to pay her this young goat. But guess what? He doesn't have a young goat with him. So she says, just leave me your signet ring and your staff, and I'll hold that as a deposit. 
So when you, you bring the young goat back, and I'll give these back to you. So a couple days go past. Judah comes back, and he can't, find, he can't find this woman anywhere. He never realized that this was his daughter-in-law, right? So a few months go by. Judah hears word from his friends. Hey, Judah, guess what? Your daughter-in-law clearly has been immoral because she's got this baby bump growing, and uh, she's not married to anybody. And so Judah, what does Judah say? Let her be burned, Judah says. So Judah, you, you, you know that you see the hypocrisy, Right? So they go and they bring out Tamar. They bring her out for her judgment. And she, she holds up and she goes, Well, before you guys execute me, this signet ring is the man by whom I'm pregnant. And they look at it. Lo and behold, Judah's signet ring. The signet ring is, a, is an identifier, like a signature, right? And so Judah then says, Oh, like, she is more righteous than I am. And so he finally fesses up, like, yeah, he's been, a, he's been a dirtbag here, and he hasn't handled things well. He hasn't done what he was supposed to do. And now she's pregnant. She gives birth to a couple of children, as we see in Matthew's genealogy here. But when you look at this story, so that's, that's it for Tamar's story, okay, for the little study we're going to look at for her today. But when you look at her story, you, this is probably... The, the one filled with the most kind of scandalous, um, uh, yeah, like I said before, soap opera-worthy pieces. It's, it's, it's crazy when you read it all. But when you think of the amount of shame that she had to endure, you can look at that and kind of go, okay, like, I understand why she did what she did. She was somewhat justified in that. And from, from our perspective, and looking even from her cultural perspective, we can say that, okay, she, maybe she was justified a bit. But when you look at actually her acts, she did sin in this. She was deceitful. She acted like a prostitute. So these are sinful things. Now, I, I understand the cultural piece. I get it, totally. But in God's eyes, this was still sinful actions that took place. So you look at her and you go, okay, Matthew, really? Like, this is somebody that you want to include in the line here. This is, the, this is important. You couldn't just say Judah. You had to say who he was with. Yeah, he chose to do that. Next, we're going to look at Rahab. So the main details that we have about Rahab's life are found in Joshua chapter 2. So if you know the story of the Exodus, and they come out of the wilderness with Moses, and they wander in the desert for 40 years. Moses passes away. Joshua becomes the leader. They cross the Jordan. They're into the promised land. They're about to go start invading cities and taking over, taking the land that God has given them. And so they, they send, first though, they want to send some spies up into uh, Jericho, the first city that they want to take over. So they send these spies into the city and these spies go in and, and uh, nighttime comes and so they have to find a place to stay. And so they, they duck into the prostitute's house, which in those days for visitors to come in, if they have nowhere to go, that would be kind of a common thing to do. So they go into the prostitute's house and the prostitute knows who they are Rahab knows who they are. 
And she could easily just give them up to her people and to her guards. And some guards come by and they knock on the door and they say, hey, we hear that there's some visitors here. And she's like, oh, no, they left long ago. They're already out the city. If you chase after them, you can catch them. Meanwhile, she was hiding these Hebrew spies in her house. So once the guards leave, she tells the spies, starting in verse 8, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So Rahab knows the stories. The, the word has spread of how God is protecting the Hebrew people, the Jews, as they're coming to the promised land. And people are scared. So then she says to them, Now, now then, please swear to me by the Lord that... As I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with me and my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the man said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And that's what happens when the, the, when the Israelites come and they march around the city and they blow the trumpets and the walls come crashing down. They take over the city. They spare Rahab's family. And Rahab lives among them for the rest of her life. But there's still this piece of Rahab being a prostitute. If, you, if, you, if you're in ancient times, again, and, and you are hearing Matthew talk about this, you might go, why, Matthew? Why would you include her name? Not someone you'd expect in the line of the coming Messiah. Okay, so that's two out of the way. Here's number three, Ruth. So what do you know about Ruth? So for those of us who grew up and watched VeggieTales uh, or um, watched or, or, or spent time in Sunday school and the flannel graphs and all that stuff, you look at Ruth and you think, oh, Ruth's wonderful. But when you read, the first thing you learn about Ruth is that she is a Moabite. And Moabites to ancient Israelites are the, the, the worst of the worst. They are the lowest of the low. Moabites go, they trace their ancestry all the way back to the time of Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you remember the story of when Sodom and Gomorrah is burned down and Lot escapes with his daughters and he hides in a cave with them. And some stuff happens there and some children are born out of that relationship. One of them's name is Moab. So to the ancient Israelites, this idea that there's a Moabite, Ruth the Moabite. When, you, when this was first written and you would have, you would have heard this story or, or even if you lived at the time when it happened, you would have been like, Moabites? Yeah, stay away from the Moabites. 
But nevertheless, here it is. Ruth is a Moabite. And the author of Ruth calls Ruth a Moabite five times. He, said, he calls her, there's many times he could just say Ruth. We all know who she is by now, but he says Ruth the Moabite. So everybody knows. And as you read Ruth's story, you see a woman who doesn't wish to be with her people, but wishes rather to be faithful to her mother-in-law Naomi and faithful to the God of Israel. So Naomi's husband dies. Naomi and her husband left Israel. They went to the land of Moab to live. And then while they're there, her husband dies and her two sons die. And so now Naomi's left with her two daughters-in-law who are both Moabites. One chooses to stay in Moab. One chooses to be faithful to Naomi and even willing to be faithful to Yahweh, Naomi's God. So Naomi says, well, let's go back to my homeland. Uh, I've got land there. We can see what we, if we can make a life happen up there. So they go back to Israel. When they get there, Naomi sees uh, an opportunity because there's this, a relative of hers named Boaz. And Boaz, Boaz is a good guy. And he is a, he's a bit of an older guy, but he's a wealthy landowner. And he is one of her kinsmen redeemers. So he, being a relative, has the ability to start to provide for Naomi and to um, give, uh, or to make sure that Naomi and her family are well cared for. So Ruth goes to work in, in Boaz's field and gets to know Boaz a little bit, and he kind of takes a liking to her a little bit. Naomi hears about this, and Naomi says, Okay, Ruth, listen. Uh, I think it's time for you to go and really make your intentions known because maybe Boaz would actually marry you. So they have a little scheme. And that's for Ruth to go at the end of the harvest when Boaz is celebrating the harvest and gets a little tipsy from having too much wine. And she's supposed to slide in bed next to him. And that's what happens. Ruth chapter 3, starting verse 7. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly, Ruth comes, softly, and uncovers his feet, which is an ancient euphemism that means actually more is being uncovered than just feet. And she lays down. At midnight, the man was startled, and he turned over. And behold, a woman was laying at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answers, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. So basically what's happening here is Ruth is coming to him, and she is making an offer of proposal. She's offering herself physically, yes, but also in marriage. But Boaz, Boaz is an honorable guy. So he says, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. So her character has been built already. Even though she's a Moabite, she's spent enough time there already that people know. They, they're like, oh yeah, Ruth, she's a good gal. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer closer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. 
But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So Boab, or Boaz, Boaz shows the type of man he is, the character that he wants to do this the right way. He's not going to give in to temptation that night. He's going to say, you know what? Yeah, I think you are a great gal and I would love to marry you, but we have to go through the proper process and the proper steps and make sure that everybody knows. So Boaz the next morning goes and finds the other redeemer who is closer in relationship to Naomi than he is and says, hey brother, guess what? Naomi's land is for sale and you can redeem it and help her out. And the guy goes, yeah, I like land. I'm happy to do that. I'm going to expand my kingdom or whatever he's got. I'd love to do that. I want, the, I want to do it. And Boaz goes, and you also get Ruth, the Moabite. And the guy goes, I'm out. I'm stepping away. Don't worry. Uh, you, 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 you're the next in line? Yeah, you go for it. You go for it, buddy. You, you go for it, Boaz. I'm not going to touch a Moabite. So, see the way that Boaz does this. He's kind of wise, right? Because he wants this to happen. So he, he plays it in a way that kind of leads the guy into thinking he's going to get something great. And then, whoa, here's, some, here's the true, the full meal deal, right? Nevertheless, that's the end of the story. Boaz marries Ruth. And Ruth becomes part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. So we see a woman who's very strong in character with devotion to Naomi and devotion to Yahweh. But if you, again, were an ancient Israelite and you heard that Ruth the Moabite was going to be used by God to someday bring forth the Messiah, you would say, you're crazy. Never. Not Messiah material. Next, we're going to look at Bathsheba. Matthew's genealogy, he doesn't even mention her by name. He just calls her the wife of Uriah. So that we remember the illegitimate way that she ended up getting married to David. And I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. David is sit sitting back at home. He's the king, and he sends all his men out to war, but he decides to stay home and kind of just enjoy life. And he notices this beautiful woman. He invites her over, yada, yada, yada. She's pregnant. And now Bathsheba was likely a Jewish woman. We don't know for sure. Uh, unlike Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth, who were all Gentiles. But Bathsheba, being a Jew, she, would, she married a Gentile. So this would have, in and, in and of itself, that marriage would have been shameful. Because Uriah the Hittite, this is a Gentile. And now she commits adultery. So shame, shame, double shame, Bathsheba. Lots of shame on her life. And again, for the fourth time, not really someone you'd expect to see in the Messiah's lineage. But then we get to Mary. Mary, on the other hand, is very different. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. So right away we see that she's still young. She's still a virgin. She's a Jew. This is looking good. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. 
And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So imagine being a 13-year-old girl, 14, 15. You're at home, you're, you're, you're engaged to be married, betrothed to somebody, and this angel shows up to you and says, you're going to be pregnant with God's son. Shocking. Absolutely shocking. And look at her response. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Fair question. But notice that she doesn't express doubt. Earlier in, uh, when, when Zechariah is told that his wife's going to have a baby and that's going to be John the Baptist, he, he expresses doubt and he laughs. But not Mary. And the angel says to her, the, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Isn't that remarkable, Mary's response? Just this humble servant's heart. She's been given some absolutely crazy news of what is going to be happening, with, happening in her body over the next nine months. And she says, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me as you've said. Now, Mary was not perfect, though. She was not sinless. She was a regular human being like you and I are. But one thing, if we look in, her, in a comparison of her and the other four women that we've looked at, she doesn't have the backgrounds that they have. There, she's never been a prostitute. She's never been engaged, never had any sexual encounters. She wasn't a Moabite. Nothing about her was shameful. She was honorable. But nonetheless, she did encounter shame. And she did experience shame. First thing, Moses, or Moses, Joseph sought to divorce her. Says quietly so he wouldn't bring shame on her. But everybody knew that they were engaged. So nonetheless, if, if, if Joseph would have followed through with that, it would have been shame brought on her. Secondly, though, as she is engaged in Moses, or, <laughs> why do I keep calling him Moses? Joseph decides that she's innocent and stays with her. And, and he decides that he's, you know, the angel Gabriel shows up to him and, and convinces him, just stay with her. This is a good thing. The Messiah is coming through her. And so he stays. But even so, they aren't fully married yet. And, and she would have had this, again, a baby growing and her stomach would have been showing. And this would have been incredibly hard for her. And there would have been a lot of secrets kind of going around, a lot of talk behind her back in her own community. She would have been experiencing a tremendous amount of shame brought on to her by the culture around her. No mistake. 
she would have felt shame. So there they are, all five women, Jews and Gentiles, women who have been, uh, who lived lifestyles that were not desirable, that were sinful, women who lived better lifestyles. Women who were shamed by their own sin. Women who were shamed by the sins of others. Every one of them, though, guided by this unexpected providence that God was going to work through them to bring about the Messiah. By God's unexpected providence, the Messiah's line was carried through. Judah's affair with Tamar. Rahab's lifestyle as a prostitute. Ruth's Moabite bloodline. The adultery and murder that underscored Bathsheba's marriage to David. And Mary, who was publicly shamed, for carrying a child out of wedlock. Which brings us to our one application. Jesus didn't die just for our sin, but also for our shame. Jesus didn't die just for my sin or just for your sin, but also for your and my shame. It's true something we in the West don't really focus on a lot because our, our culture is built a lot more on what's right and what's wrong. But in the East, in the Middle East, in Africa, in Asia, they talk a lot more about shame. And shame is the bigger deal. So if somebody sins in their culture and that sin brings, the, the sin in and of itself is, is bad, but the worst part is that that sin brings shame upon the family. That's the big deal. And that was the big deal in Jesus' time as well. And that's still a, a big deal in, in a large part of the world today. Um, I have a friend who is from one of those cultures. And um, in his culture, basically, the idea is that if you're going to grow up, the way, the way to honor your father, or the way to honor your family is to follow in the footsteps of your father and take on the same profession. Or because there's a number of Christians in their community. Or if not, that means that you would, the other honorable thing you could do is go into ministry. So my friend did just that. He went into ministry. But he went to the States, went to seminary, studied there. God is master of divinity and was on his way. But even back home in his home country, the idea was still that, you know what? It, it's not quite good enough that he has his master of divinity. He has to get ordained in the right denomination and he has to come home and serve us here. His home people. And so you can imagine the pressure that, that my friend was feeling as he's going through his training, as he is figuring out where, because you get your Master of Divinity, it's not guaranteed that you're going to be ordained in the denomination necessarily that you want to be in even. And so the family back home is going, yes, it's great that you've gone off to seminary, but we're, we're, we're holding off judgment on this. And for his, for his parents and his siblings back home, there's always this question of, well, you know, if he stays out, out yonder in the States or in Canada or whatever country he chooses to minister in, if he doesn't come home, why didn't he come home? What's wrong with the home? What's wrong with the family? And so even if it wasn't overt shame, it was these questions that would come up. 
And this is the kind of pressure that my friend was living under. So much pressure, in fact, that at times his wife fell into major bouts of depression because of the pressure. This is the kind of uh, intense uh, feelings and pressure that, that this cultures of shame can bring. And don't be fooled, it happens here too. And I know that there's people in our church that are dealing with thoughts and feelings of shame from things either that have been, that they have done in the past or things that have been done to them. And I know some of you are watching today. But listen, you don't need to identify in the shame of anything that, has, that you've done or anything that's been done to you. Your Redeemer is greater than that. Jesus is your kinsman redeemer. Jesus is your big brother who has stepped in and said, you know what? Yeah, I realize everything that's happened. Yeah, I see that what you've done. I see what's been done to you. I know the feelings that you've felt. But you're still mine. Even think about all the shame that Jesus himself had to endure as he was on his way to the cross. He, he, was, he was arrested unjustly. He was beaten, he was whipped, he had to carry his cross. And when he was nailed there, the depictions we do of Jesus nailed on the cross always have him covered just a little bit. But in that day, he would not have been covered at all. With his mother and his friends and the other women that he knew and loved watching on. Do you think of the amount of shame that Jesus endured? It's incredible. So on the cross, Jesus didn't just take your sin, he also took your shame. So when you think of your Savior, don't think of, of somebody who is just righteous and perfect and has, yes, lived for you, but here, and lived and died for you, and, uh, and now you're, you're still here struggling. No, he is someone who is removed your sin as far as the east is from the west, and your shame as far as the east is from the west. It's not on you anymore. It's on him. When Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, comes to us like this, redeeming sinful and shameful people as we are and calls us his bride, his friends, his brothers, even calls us his body, the church, the body of Christ. When Jesus comes to us like that, loving you to that extent, how can you not worship him? How can you not be filled with joy as you head towards Christmas and in every day of your life? Your identity doesn't need to be in your shame. So will you leave all your shame with him today? Will you do that? Will you leave it with him the God of the universe who lived a perfect life, died a death that you deserved, and raised to new life and promises to come again. Will you leave it with him? I recommend that you do because he has taken it and he says that it is finished. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we praise you for who you are and all you've done. We thank you for your word that we can look back through it and we can see who these people are that are named here. We can look at their stories and see that 
even though we call them heroes of the Bible, we can look at their lives and go, wow, they aren't any different from me. But Lord, you have chosen to use broken people to fulfill your purposes through history. And I'm thankful that you did that through Jesus' lineage too. That we can see that he isn't a savior who is just far off and distant and has no idea what it's like to be a human, but he actually, his bloodline even comes through people who were, some were dastardly, some were wicked, some were great, men, women, Jew, Gentile, sinful, shameful, heroes, all of them. And we thank you that we can look even at Jesus' bloodline and say, wow, not only did he know what it was like to live as a person, but he knows what it's like to have a family that's super messed up. So we thank you for that, and we pray, Lord, I pray for those that are feeling still the weight of shame or the weight of sin that's on them. I pray that they would be able to find freedom in you, Lord Jesus. I pray that they would not keep these things to themselves, but that they would open up to trusted friends and family and pastors. We would love to walk through it with them and help them experience freedom in you, Lord Jesus. So bless us all as we go from here and as we continue to sing. In your name, amen.